Happy 2024 and welcome to a new year of CyberWork Live. This is an ongoing series dedicated to asking and answering questions about cybersecurity certifications, training, and careers with a goal of separating fact from fiction when choosing your career in cybersecurity. And as for this series, we're really going to be looking closely at the fiction aspects of this. So first, if you don't know me, my name is Chris Senko, and I am the CyberWork Live host and InfoSec Online Content Acquisitions Editor. And I'm very excited to welcome you to the second installment of CyberWork Presents Media Fictions, Cyber Realities. Today, we're going to be talking about hacking versus ethical hacking and how they look in movies and TV. So if you haven't seen our previous episode from June, uh, July 2023, we covered uh, depictions of digital forensics as seen in TV shows like The Rookie and In the Dark, as well as from the John Wick films. Uh, and you can find it at infosecinstitute.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the InfoSec YouTube page. And with that, I would like to introduce you to our esteemed panel of guests today. So our first guest uh, is going to be a familiar face for InfoSec regulars, and I think you know who I mean. Heatron Evans is a cybersecurity and workforce development expert with over 17 years of experience in penetration testing, incident response, and information security management for federal agencies and Fortune 500 organizations. He's the principal security researcher at InfoSec Institute, where he empowers the human side of cybersecurity with cyber knowledge and skills to outsmart cybercrime. Heatron is an established researcher, instructor, and speaker, as well as the lead author of the best-selling book, Chained Exploits, Advanced Hacking Attacks from Start to Finish. Heatron holds a Bachelor of Science in Business Information Systems and dozens of cybersecurity certifications, including Certified Information Systems Security Professional, CISSP, Certified Ethical Hacker, CEH, cloud, uh, Certified Cloud Security Professional, and Licensed Penetration Tester. Next, I would like to introduce a returning CyberWork guest, Snehal Antani. Snehal is an entrepreneur, technologist, and investor. He is CEO and co-founder of Horizon3.ai, a cybersecurity company using AI to deliver red teaming and penetration testing as a service, which is why I would really wanted him on the panel today. He also serves as a highly qualified expert for the U.S. Department of Defense, driving digital transformation and data initiatives in support of special operations. Prior to his current roles, Snehal was CTO and SVP at Splunk, held multiple CIO roles at GE Capital, and started his career as a software engineer at IBM. He has a master's in computer science from uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic University, a BS in computer science from Purdue University, and holds 16 patents. So rounding out our list, illustrious panel today are two guests with real-world experience in something that a lot of these movies and shows tend to exaggerate, namely large-scale competitive CTF competitions. So from this year's U.S. Cyber Games team, I'd first like to introduce head coach, Dr. Josh Brunty. He's an associate professor and director of the Cyber Forensics and Security Graduate Program at Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia. He also serves as the research lead for Marshall's Institute of Cybersecurity. Prior to joining Marshall University in 2012, he served seven years as a digital forensics examiner and technical leader within both state and federal government sectors. He has a PhD in information technology from Middle Georgia State University and BA and MS degrees in criminal justice and criminology, Marshall University. Since 2013, Josh has served as faculty advisor and coach of Marshall's highly successful collegiate cyber defense competition team, competing in a number of CTF and red versus blue competitions. And finally, representing the U.S. Cyber Game team in Seasons 2 and 3, I'd like you to please welcome Cyber Games athlete Josiah Stearns. Josiah is a cyberspace operations officer in the U.S. Air Force and the CTO of Backslash Technology Solutions. He graduated from the U.S. Air Force Academy with a B.S. in Computer Science and Cyber Science and is currently earning an M.S. in Computer Science at the Air Force Institute of Technology. Josiah has over 10 years of cyber competition and programming experience, competing in Cyber Patriot in high school and later competing on the USAFA Cyber Team, AFIT Cyber Team, and U.S. Cyber Team. He specializes in tool development in addition to expertise in web application security and reverse engineering. Over his career, he has jobs. He has had jobs as a system administrator, web developer, penetration tester, and network engineer. So Keytron, Snehal, Josh, and Josiah, hello and welcome to CyberWork Live. Thank you all for being here today. So we'll be taking questions from the audience as they come in throughout the event. But to give our discussions a bit of structure, I and Jeff Peters, InfoSec's Director of Content and Brand Marketing, have compiled some short clips depicting the way that entertainment has depicted the art of hacking, whether positive or negative, accurate or laughable. And we'll be deploying these throughout the event as a means for reframing and clarifying our conversation. So enough prologue. Let's get started with CyberWork Live. So to get us ready uh, to get down to business, let's look at a few of the more 
colorful examples of hacking you might have seen on movies and TV. This is some of the most accurate hacking depictions you'll ever see. about an employee of ours, uh, Agent Richard Gill. Yes. Uh, our records indicate he's deceased. Um, what? Quick, quick, quick. Thank you. Return. Three, two, one. Gill, come on, come on. Well, I hate to show you guys videos that I know will be so uh, uh, familiar to your everyday existence here, but you know, for our for our viewers, I figure we might as well uh, uh, be a little repetitive there. So it's no great leap of logic to say that the writers of films like Hackers and Swordfish are more interested in telling a compelling and thrilling story than representing the practice of hacking in any realistic way. Or maybe they didn't know what the real tech looked like, or they might have just taken a look at the real thing and said, ah, too boring. Who wants to see that? So I want to go around the panel to get your own experiences growing up and seeing things like this. So I'm going to start with Snehal. Uh, tell me how you first got into cybersecurity and pen testing and red teaming. And did seeing films or things like this influence your interest in tech, or was it just sort of something that was happening on the side? No, it was. Um, it's a great question. It's kind of a blend of a few things. So my dad is an electrical engineer and uh, got me into to uh, just computers and, and hardware at a very young age, uh, six years old. He was bringing home toy robots for me to, uh, to learn how to take apart and debug and troubleshoot and, and fix. And so it was this curiosity of, of breaking things and then, and then uh, uh, figuring out how to get them fixed that got me excited about tech in general. And then when, uh, when AOL was like the only medium to get into get online uh, and you were metered by the number of hours, whenever I got in trouble, the first thing my parents would do was ground me and take away my AOL account. And so I started digging into various bolt board services and got access to a couple of AOL hacker tools that allowed me to do uh, phishing in chat rooms at scale, looking at punting users and all that kind of jazz. I think I was 12 years old at the time and, or maybe 10. And uh, suddenly my parents couldn't take AOL away from me because there's always a way for me to get access to a set of accounts. So I learned about Fishing chat rooms, and I think the statute of limitations is over, so I'll talk about it. But, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, 12 years, 30, 40 years ago, um, <laughs> 30 years ago. But, uh, but I really got into that, and my dad pretty quickly said, hey, look, if you go down this path, you're going to end up in trouble. And, uh, and so get your, get your head straight, which is a nice wake-up call. But I've always had this curiosity of breaking things, rebuilding things, and being methodical in doing it. And when I saw hackers come out and then um, – Sword, Swordfish was entertaining, and uh, and then Die Hard Four, and so on and so forth. It was kind of cool to get back into uh, what my life could have been had I not decided to go straight. <laughs> All right, uh, uh, Josh, I want to ask you about your own experiences. Uh, you know, did you see films like this, and have you ever drank wine, spun around in your chair, and played your keyboard like a piano while conducting a pen test? No, no, I would have been about five or six years old if I did that. Okay. So, but okay. no, my my beginnings a lot like the last story you heard. Um, you know, back in the 1980s, I had a Commodore 64C and uh, C64, I'm sorry, 
uh, you know, one of the old, old models and learning on basic from that, you know, and and getting modems, you know, you know, old yep. dial up modems, dialing in to old BBS services, learning uh, different scripts to work out th- just how things worked, um, you know, and, and going out and chatting and, and, you know, bypassing certain things. So that kind of parlayed into college, you know, as more uh, as a kind of got more into programming computer science and uh, started competing, you know, with just different teams there. Um, Of course, you know, went out and and started a career in digital forensics and then, you know, kind of came back to that love when I came back to the university of starting a, you know, cyber defense team, getting involved in uh, collegiate cyber defense competitions and things of that nature. So, uh, you know, it's completely different than that. I always kept, it wasn't as dark. I didn't work like that. Um, the lights were always on and, yeah. uh, it took me a lot longer, uh, to peck out a, a basic script than these folks in these clips. Do. So, yeah. That's, uh, yeah I, 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 as I say in the slide here, I, I, I mentioned these things because I think, you know, they, they can serve two purpose, you know, one, uh, people who may have seen that at the time might've gotten an impression of it being a much more fast paced and, kind of edge of your seat and thrilling thing than, than it, it can be when you're slowly going through, you know, various tools and whatnot. And conversely, you know, for someone who was, uh, you know, more of a scaredy cat as a kid, it could have a built-in intimidation factor where you think if I'm doing this kind of work, I'm going to be a constant target for cyber criminals or as, as uh, Snehal said, you know, go on the right, wrong side of the law or whatnot. And so, you know, um, I want to do these things that, you know, to sort of break down the idea that security is only the purview of people who've been tech obsessed from birth rather than, you know, intuitive pro- problem solvers and planners with accessible upskilling plans and stuff. So I want to talk to uh, Josiah next uh, and, you know, who's kind of a generation younger than some of the folks here is the newest entry in the cybersecurity space. Uh, were things like this in the backdrop of your youth while you were learning uh, this kind of tech? Did this, does this stuff even have uh, sort of like an effect on you in, in your own studies? Yeah, um, I think to a certain degree, yes. I did a, a lot more reading than maybe watching movies or shows or things when I was younger. And so mm-hmm. um, there were a couple books, um, one in particular, the the um, Genius series, um, which is a trilogy that uh, covers the life of a, a um, young prodigy hacker uh, that um, had some, I think, more realistic elements to it and just some ideas in there. And there there wasn't a lot, but there were just those couple moments of things where he uh, uh, rewrote the firmware on a laptop so that it he could turn the microphone into a speaker, something like that. And these little yeah. things that are like, oh, wow, yeah, you can you could do things like that. Um, it kind of sparked my interest. And then um, I think two, two really key moments that shaped my journey were – uh, when I was, I think I was eight, um, I actually learned how to code from a library book. I checked out a, a library book on Visual Basic um, that mm-hmm. came with a CD-ROM in the back with a, an IDE and um, spent a summer learning that. Uh, so it started with coding first. And then um, when I was a couple years older, uh, was working doing just some system administrator type work um, for a, a small company and uh was just messing around one day with our database system, which we contracted out. And uh, I don't even remember exactly how I knew about it, but I had, I had seen something online about cross-site scripting. Um, and so it was just kind of playing around with things and noticed, Oh, I can change. I can make my, uh, my name really big on their screen, or I can actually make things pop up on their screen and do all these things. Right. Uh, and then I got a call from my boss saying, Hey, you've made stuff pop up on everyone's screen um, in the company. <laughs> You need to take that off, please. Uh, and so then got my first penetration testing um, internship that way, uh, doing a lot of testing for that that bigger database company, which was really good. So um, anyway, so I'd like to say there was a lot of different uh, sources of, of media there. The, the books that I read, I think, were probably the most impactful thing um, in my journey personally. Uh, but then uh, I really want to echo this and I, um, I heard already in terms of the, just the importance of troubleshooting in that too. And just mm-hmm. that, that ideology of, um, how can I take this apart? How can I break it, fix it and put it back together? And that process has applied to many different things. Yeah. As someone who doesn't have, uh, you know, your particular set of skills, I, I have to imagine, I can't even imagine the thrill of like doing something that you've seen in a book and then, 
suddenly seeing, oh, it actually works on my <laughs> on my company's, you know, network and my, my my company's system. Like that just feels like it's, you know, it's it's a whole next level, especially for, you know, I also had a, a, a C64 growing up and never even thought to, you know, much go beyond, you know, games and, and basic little basic programming and so forth. But that's really cool. So um Keytron, I want I've talked with you a few times on here about your cyber origin origin story, but many of our listeners they may not have heard some of that. But how did films like Hackers or Sneakers or books like Neuromancer, Snow Crash, color your perception of real-world hacking, either ethical or criminal, when you were coming up? Yeah, TV didn't really have that much effect. I mean, I grew up in rural Mississippi uh, in a very poor uh, household, so we we had three TV channels, you know, NBC, ABC, and CBS, so I didn't get to catch a lot of that. But I did, in study hall in high school, there was a, a book called Popular Mechanics, a magazine that I would you know, in study hall, I would read that every week. And uh, they started talking about computers. And, you know, I had a family member that worked at Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi in Mississippi. And, you know, they gave they gave away a bunch of computers and, you know, she bought one of them home and I got hands on it. I was the only one interested. Found out about something called Net Zero, which is like around the AOL days where you could get Internet for free for a certain amount of time and then you'd have to pay. And if you were lucky enough to get your hand on a bunch of those CDs, you could just keep using them and keep getting free Internet. So I did that, got on uh, as, you know, as pointed out by C. Hall earlier, back in the day, the Internet used to just be like a black screen with text on it, like you had to type things, bulletin boards. So I got into some bulletin boards and started talking to some people. And, you know, they were telling me, well, you know, if you got net zero, you can get free. And again, to C. Hall's point, statute limitations passed here. So I'm admitting (laughs) this. Uh, we these pe- these these guys in the UK were telling me how I could get free internet, you know, if I ran these commands, and they were showing me how to use Unix commands. Like I was getting introduced to cat and cat Etsy password because back then there was no such thing as shadow. So if you got the Etsy passwd file, you got username and password. So they were showing me that, and they were like, "Yeah, just pick any one of these thousands of accounts and use that to log in, and then you don't have to ever pay for internet again." So um, that was what got me interested. It's like, man, just by knowing that one thing, it empowered me to where even though I couldn't afford it, I could get it, you know, by using these other accounts on there. So that was my that piqued my interest in it. And I started looking at NASA and like some other stuff that I shouldn't have been looking at back then, because back then nobody really had security. Like everything was just wide open. You know, because the assumption was if you're here, you're supposed to be here. Um, so that's that got me interested in protocols and understanding TCP IP and Novell networks and stuff like that. And really, my foundation in hacking just came from understanding, as was just pointing out um, a second ago uh, by Josiah, was just understanding how things work. Right. Like mm-hmm. it really was just figuring out how does how does this message get from my screen to somebody else's screen on the other side of the country. Uh, yeah. And I really got deep, deep into network protocols and IPX and SPX and how Novell networks work and things like that. And on top of that, the foundation for hacking just kind of came naturally um, as I got introduced to, to different opportunities. Yeah, fantastic. So uh, thank you for that. So now uh, now that our team's been assembled and, and showed us their very specific set of skills and origin stories, uh, I want to broaden out to discuss the misperceptions that hacking has been fed to the public over the years. And as you can see in the slide here, uh, this entire series was kind of birthed by an email that we received on an early CyberWork Live episode. Uh, we were asking for the most basic cybersecurity questions. And if you see in the, in the right side there, uh, one person wrote, can I still be a penetration tester if I can't Type fast, and so which you know it's it's easy enough to sort of uh, uh, you know smile at these 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 videos and how unrealistic they look, but it's it's pretty clear that they do make some kind of a, a of an impression on people who are watching them. So um, I want to sort of reframe this uh, by talking with uh, our educators first. So uh, Josh, as someone who teaches security in a higher ed capacity, can you tell me about the types of students that come to your class in 2024 wanting to learn? ethical hacking and related skills? Like what are their perceptions about the challenges they'll face in the industry and, and what they're there to do? Well, I mean, their perceptions are, are a lot different than they were, and especially what you see in Hollywood. A lot of our students are coming in, they want 
to to legitimize and learn a craft. They want to learn how to do this and, and parlay that into a career. So a lot of the students coming in are, are really wanting to be a white hat or an ethical hacker, if you want to refer to it as that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and they come in with different interests. You know, we you know, what we referred to, you know, as as a bunch of different terms is now called open source intelligence, which is a, a subset of hacking. So want to get into intelligence, open source intelligence. Uh, we have people that, that want to specialize in red teaming or blue teaming or even digital forensics now. So um, compared to what we saw a long time ago, you know, there was just this this hacker and there was this blanket term for everything. Uh, I'm seeing now that people want to specialize. They, they want to learn specific things and maybe learn multiple, you know, uh, different um, specialty areas and you know, pick from those specialty areas for their career. And I think as as this continues to evolve, you know, we're um, going to see, I think, out of our students, and I'm seeing this uh, out of students as a whole, is a more active engagement. You know, students want to put their hands on the keyboard and they want to learn these and more in an active environment. Um, you know, obviously, there's the the standard protocols and, and standard bedrocks of, of computer science that you absolutely have to learn in order to understand what you're doing when you're typing. Um, and, and that's that's not going to go away. You know, it's good to learn those things, but it's also good to mix that in um, to uh, put that into an active engagement, you know, uh, yeah. seeing, you know, what you're doing and, and seeing the effects of it. Uh, that's the different student that I'm seeing today compared to when I was a student years ago where, you know, you would code out, you know, 200 lines of code before you got to see exactly what it would do. And and it's just not that case anymore. It's it's a little more active and, and engaging than it was. Yeah, I have to imagine that just there's there's just a, so much more info about, uh, you know, what's available out there that you can sort of already be thinking about your specialty before you even step foot in the classroom, whereas... Maybe when you started 15 years ago, that was not as much the case. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Uh, you know, we have Google, you know, we, and now we have AI. So, right. you know, AI and ML is going to change, I think, over the next year of how we learn, how we prompt, you know, if we're, we're stuck on this portion of, of a script or something that we're working with, we can actually prompt a ML to say, hey, you know, can you help me through this? Can, can you show me what where I'm going wrong? Right. That's something we didn't even have two years ago. We also have Google and and that that compendium of knowledge gets bigger and bigger and bigger every year. That's something I didn't have when I was in college. So, uh, you know, it was a lot different. You know, we were there was a lot of struggling. And and I don't think even me now, you know, I like those assistive technologies to kind of help kind of what we call cognitive offloading uh, to make things a little bit easier and move on to the the bigger things that we, we enjoy more. Yeah. Um, Keytron, we've talked in the past about uh, how your Cyber Foundations course can bring people with nearly no tech background into a strong baseline of experience uh, in cybersecurity fundamentals. So can you tell me a little bit about the people that are taking your cybersecurity basics class and or your your pen testing classes? I'm guessing not everyone you've taught was changing their grades in the school database by age 15, right? I mean, they might not have, but some of them were paying somebody else to do it, right? The, okay. the geeky kid to do it. Um, they knew it existed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, essentially, the, the Cyber Foundations is really for people that are that have zero experience, right? Like nurses. I've had nurses, airline pilots, you know, people that have no technical background that are trying to move into a cyber-based career. But one thing we have noticed over the last, I'd say, 15 years is the the people coming into like a penetration testing course or an ethical hacking course, the skill levels are much less technical than they were 10 years ago, right? Because I remember when I would teach a class 10 years ago for pen testing, everybody in there would have at least 10 years experience doing hardcore network engineering, a hardcore coding, right? Whereas now I'd say 50% of those classes, those people have never done anything like that before, right? It's right. they're trying to fast track into the industry. And to the to the point that Josiah just made, one of the most popular courses on skills right now is that chat GPT for SOC analyst that I wrote, where instead of saying, you know, IP.addr equal equal whatever to do like this complex filter in Wireshark, you can just say, hey, chat GPT, what's the filter to look at? Josiah's traffic and and Josh's traffic, 
you know, if you know their IP addresses and then it gives you the filter and then it tells you like the logic behind why each part of that filter works. So it's almost like having an expert instructor standing over your shoulder with these tools. And to Josiah's point or to Josh's point, we didn't even have that two years ago, you know, and that's something that's going to revolutionize. And even with just, um, you know, the, the, the learning curve for people to get into it. I mean, no, no free marketing here for Sihal, but it, like if you look at the product that they have, like it, you know, like we always say you can't do hacking as fast as we see the movies, but with, the, with their tool, you can almost do it that fast, you know, but not quite. Um, so the, the evolutions are happening. It's going to rapidly accelerate how fast the bad guys can get up the speed. And we've even seen evidence of them using AI for phishing where their efficiency and how they fish goes gets exponentially better every minute versus them having to learn over a period of months about that organization. So we on the defensive and on the blue team side, we have to be able to get people up to speed faster uh, to be able to kind of counter that and defend against it. And I think a big part of that is, you know, leaning into the AI tools and not only that, empowering people to create their own, you know, AI chatbots and things like that. Yeah. Okay. So before we get into our, our next um, set of questions here, we are getting some good questions in from the live audience. Thank you for, for writing in. I wanted to uh, throw one out here because it seems like it's a good place for it. So Justin Armstrong writes, uh, at what point is someone qualified to perform a penetration test of a network? This is what I ask myself. It is when I can, uh, is it when I can pass the OSCP? I have used some tools, but I'm not an expert yet. And I don't want to charge someone for a penetration test until I believe they are getting their money's worth out of me. So that's a, I think that's a really interesting point. And, and you know, we, Josiah, you talked earlier about that sort of like that breakthrough where you went from sort of learning to doing. And is this is this something that one of you or, or all of you want to sort of uh, jump in on? Where do you think the uh, uh, the sort of proficiency point comes when you're ready to go out and, and use your talents for uh, for other people? Yeah, I can take a first stab at that. I mean, I think that's kind of tricky. I mean, you know, I do run a firm that does that, but like it's. You know, really, if are you able to go and show value, right? Like, can you go and show that customer where their vulnerabilities are? Can you do a proof of concept and prove that these vulnerabilities can be exploited? And can you write them a report that communicates in a way that gives that customer actionable items, things that they can go and do something about? If you can just hack systems, that's only like one fourth of being a good pen tester. Right. So if you if you can do all those things and present it to a customer in a good way and they accept that and, and they can come back and turn around and tell you that they got value from it, then I think you're ready to start charging. And I think a good way to get to that point is volunteering some some services to nonprofits and places like that and letting them give you critiques and feedback on, you know, that pen test that you did for them. And just straight I, I would straight up ask, like, would you pay for this? You know, if I did this again in a year, uh, do you think the, the value you got is, is worth paying for? I think that's a good way for people that are trying to decide if they need to start charging or not. Uh, you, a good way for you to kind of give yourself a gauge as to where you are. Um, some people will tell you, you know what, if you go do the work, just charge for it. Doesn't matter how well you think you did. And I don't really agree with that 100 percent, but I can also see some value in that perspective. As well. Mm-hmm. All right. Anyone, anyone want to add anything to that? I would, um, I would probably go back to something that Josiah said earlier, which is, you know, 10 years ago when he mentioned that a lot of people going through his courses were very strong technically. And I found the best, the best offensive security folks have very strong network engineering skills. And just in general, some of the best security um, folks that have been on my team came from a very strong network engineering uh, background. But I think there's an interesting reckoning that's going to occur. And we already see this in the software engineering, software development side. So probably three to five years ago, it became very popular for people to pursue software engineering boot camps as a way to change careers. And so you're doing something, you go to a boot camp for eight to 12 weeks, and now you're a software engineer getting an entry-level position. But if you look at what co-pilots have done to the boot camp graduates, they're actually wiping them out uh, because it's Copilot is good enough or or even better at cranking out production ready code, whether it's Microsoft Copilot or, or Git Git Copilot or so on and so forth. And I think that's putting a lot of pressure on people that um, 
that, are, that have boot camp experience but don't have that deep subject matter expertise to move up the value chain. And I think the other thing is happening is putting pressure on senior software engineers to um, be much better at reading and troubleshooting and integrating other people's code, which is a very senior thing to do. I think we're, we're going to see the same thing happen from a, a pen testing standpoint, just like we're going to see it happen in legal as GPT comes out and so on, which is uh, for those that are dabbling or very entry level, there's going to be a tremendous amount of pressure for them to upscale very quickly and become as senior as you possibly can because algorithmic uh, capabilities like what I've built and what other people are, are building and so on are going to give a senior pen tester unlimited interns, right, to some degree. Yeah. And, and, and so I think we have to really rethink the way that we're educating pen testers going forward and make sure that we're, we're giving them a path to understand how human machine teaming in this world is going to become the new model, just like we're seeing in software development. All right. So uh, thank you for, for that. Uh, so now that we've looked at the fiction, uh, I want to uh, sort of look more at the less glamorous but more accurate version of uh, our industry here. So, uh, you know, I don't want to be too hard on Hollywood. I mean, I, I realize that along with the lives of painters and authors, there's probably not a lot less visually compelling than a realistic cinematic depiction of a penetration test or incident response analysis. So, uh, but I still don't think that that means that we have to sort of uh, make this sound dry and boring. So to jazz up our listeners who are considering getting into cybersecurity, who are working on it, uh, who are writing in right now, but might be feeling a little deflated about the distinct lack of Hugh Jackman or Ange Angelina Jolie they'll be experiencing. Uh, can I want to have each of you tell me about a real-life security threat, attack, or incident that you've dealt with in your professional life that was fun, interesting, or cool enough to make you feel like your own movie icon. So um, yes, yeah, Nehal, I want to start with you again here. I feel like we just scratched the surface in our last conversation on cyber work about some of the interesting things that you got to do while you were doing red team operations. Can you, can you give us an example? Yeah, I'll actually give you um, examples from two perspectives. Okay. So the first perspective is um, my time as a CIO and, and the CTO uh, having to purchase penetration testing services. And that experience, the technical term is sucked <laughs> because <laughs> one, I had to go off and, and explain like, like I would, I'd be asked this dreaded question. Are we secure? And the answer is, I'm not sure. I have to wait for a breach to find out, which was absurd if you're a business leader hearing that answer from your, your CIO or your CTO. And that I have to go off and justify, you know, contracting somebody. It would take eight to 12 weeks for them to show up. Uh, when they show up, they would uh, uh, take us over pretty quickly, you know, a couple of hours or whatever else, get domain admin. They hit us the report, and this year's report looks almost exactly like last year's report. And then I have to go off and explain you know, what happened? Why did we spend all this money in security where we're still getting pwned as quickly as we could? And then we go off and fix a bunch of issues. We're like, all right, man, can you come back and verify that this thing's been fixed? And like, yeah, you got to pay us another consulting, you know, engagement to come back and, and verify. And so this whole notion of having to sit there once a year and get punched in the face by an ethical hacker to show how bad my team is, was not something that I looked forward to doing. And so how do we shift that model to, um, being more collaborative. And this is where purple team culture started to emerge, especially in those forward-thinking security organizations, which is the red and the blue team should be working together to proactively secure the environment versus having show up with a brown paper bag lit on fire on your doorstep saying, ha, 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 which is kind of the mindset of a lot of ethical hackers. So that was kind of my experience as a buyer. And that was just unsustainable. On the flip side now, as a CEO of Horizon 3, last year, it took us seven minutes and 19 seconds to go from unauthenticated user with initial access to domain admin. Seven minutes, 19 seconds. This year, or that was 22. In 2023, it took us four minutes and 12 seconds. And by this time next year, we suspect that's under 60 seconds. And really what's happening is, and these are large complex environments, the more training data you, you build as you run pen tests, uh, the more you're able to tune your models, the more you're able to better stitch together high probability paths of achieving a te technical objective. And so if you think about it in 60 seconds or less to go from unauthenticated user to domain admin, uh, I mean, that's a game changer for both as an attacker as well as defenders, because how quickly can the defender characterize those alerts, get permission to take fixed actions and actually do something to stifle it. And so I think we're in this really interesting fundamental transition from the, the getting punched in the face experience of the last 25 years to algorithmic warfare where you've got 60 seconds or less because the attacker is blitzkrieging your network. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's, it doesn't get more, uh, doesn't get more cinematic than that. So um, I want to uh, sort of bring it around the, the table here, uh, Josh, in addition to your uh, esteemed time with Marshall university, you've also worked for NIST and worked in cyber forensics. Do you have any cool experiences or projects you could, you could tell us about? Yeah. So I came out of the forensics environment. So, um, you know, I was in law enforcement for a long time. And, you know, when I originally got into that, you know, it was hard drives and, you know, just basic phones and video and things like that, video enhancement. As my career progressed, you know, we started working breaches and working around bypassing devices. So I was really at kind of the forefront of, you know, what we're seeing in law enforcement now being able, you know, to, to bypass Android passwords or wipe them out completely, get into device. So there was a lot of hardware computer interaction that we were working with. So uh, the fun part of that, and I say this much, is no one was working in that space at that time. So you couldn't go out and Google and say, okay, you know, here's this database, you know, what's what data is in this data blob here and what's it trying to tell us? So, you know, there was just no one to ask. And so it was fun that you were at the forefront of like figuring out and decoding data and, you know, taking this SQLite database and saying, okay, you know, what value in an investigation does this have for us? And then decoding that and then publishing about that so other law enforcement uh, and, and investigators and agents could use that. Uh, so I really was loving that at the time because, you know, it was just such a challenge to me. And this is why I love cyber games now, because, you know, you get to feel a lot of that same uh, adrenaline rush when you're when you're in competition and you're trying to, to carve through that and figure that out. Uh, but, you know, what, starting to work breach investigations and things like that, you know, where we would see server compromise from nation states. Uh, it was fun because, you know, you had to pull from so many different sources and, and you're learning on the fly. So, you know, you, you, you don't know what, what this log is trying to tell you. And, you know, the techniques and tactics of your threat actors, you don't know if they're, they're coming in, you know, from different countries or uh, if they're, you know, within your borders. But, you know, you figure that out real quickly. So um, I think, you know, w when I was getting into that, I had this mindset. I did not know, really, I was learning on the fly, but I carried this mindset that, I knew I could figure it out. And, and I say that to a lot of people out there because, you know, there's this fear of like uh, imposter syndrome, if you want to call it that. I have it. I've been in this for 20 years and I still have it. Uh, but the ability to say, OK, I know people that can help me figure this out. I can figure this out. And, and would there's never been a challenge where I've just set that down and said, nope, I have no idea what's going on here and, and been able to, to plow through it. That's the most fun that, that I, I think most fulfilling thing that I've ever uh, experienced in career. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Josiah, Keytron, do you have any uh, stories you would want to add to this? Yeah. Um, so of, of things that I can talk about, I think probably the most cinematically interesting thing that I've worked on that I'm actually currently working on is um, a project that began about a year ago in which um, I'll uh, essentially I am I am building an attack on uh, airborne collision avoidance systems in which the protocol that planes use to talk to each other is unencrypted. And so I'm building a payload uh, that allows you to create fake aircraft and then um, cause planes to rapidly climb or descend in response to that. Um, and so uh, that's, uh, that's kind of the background of my, my project. Um, the thing that's cool about it is um, I actually, the initial payload for that and, and almost the entire code base that now exists for that was written in about 72 hours. I had a three day weekend, one weekend uh, at the air force Academy and basically just locked myself in my room and worked all weekend um, and knocked out a lot of the code. But I say that to highlight the fact that the, all of that code and that work that would is, is I guess, sort of like this cinematic thing that, that we're talking about um, was built upon 10 years of prior coding and learning about these protocols and learning how to write code and how uh, radios work and how all of these things interact with each other. And just this, this big background knowledge that I had on the subject that then allowed me to, in that moment, just plow through and, and write uh, this payload. So um, I think a lot of these, these projects and things, it's possible to have some of these moments that they, they show in these movies. Um, 
obviously we're not um i have i've never once uh cracked a crypto problem by visualizing a bunch of spinning cubes on the screen <laughs> yeah. that's a little bit out there um, but, down the line. yeah yeah but um this idea of uh it is possible sometimes in the moment to be able to um to get through things really quickly you just have to understand that it took years and years to build the tools and the knowledge that actually let you do that. And that's the part that they don't show on screen, but that's the part that actually matters. Um, yeah. Because when you're building those tools, uh, those are things that then can carry forward and that other people can use and that you're actually contributing to um, the rest of the community uh, that you can provide there. So, so anyway, that's, that's one example of something that uh, I think is, is a cool, like, um, pretty uh, gets gets pretty close to the plot of uh you know maybe die hard 2 or something like that mm-hmm. uh, but uh is, is realistic and so the other thing just that i want to bring out from that is that's an area where um uh you know just like josh was talking about nobody else had really done stuff in um and having that mentality of uh nobody else has done this and i want to go there is yeah. I think what drives a lot of people in this area and is, is a really important thing to foster of um, I have no idea what I'm doing, but that excites me and I want to go further. Um, Love it. That's that's really been the driving force. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's, that's great. So um, we're, we're coming up on about 20 minutes left here. So I'm going to, and we have, we're getting a bunch of really great questions in here. So I'm going to kind of speed through a few of these slides here, but I just wanted to sort of point out that, uh, you know, as we move from the fantastical to the practical, it's interesting that um, we're starting to see, some more realistic examples of hacking and hacking consequences and so forth. Like uh, this, this clip here uh, from the TV show, Mr. Robot. You see what I mean? I, I feel b- bad for poor Bill Highsmith. I mean, he's just doing the best with the budget he's been given, but you know, I don't know if we can justify that company photo away though. But um, you know, I think it's, it is interesting to see things like this on TV and things like, uh, you know, um, Trinity using a semi-realistic looking version of Nmap and Matrix Reloaded to infiltrate and take down uh, the city's power grid at a crucial moment or, you know, references to homomorphic cryptography in the James Bond movie Skyfall, even if uh, to, as you said, Josiah, that interface here is is, is wild looking. It's this big spinny uh, glowy ball thing here. So um, I, I mentioned this just briefly because, you know, we're seeing real life ransomware attacks shutting down hospitals and even emergency rooms, and we're seeing breaches like Solar Winds and Oldsmar, Florida's water treatment plant. Uh, can you, anyone, want to talk about some of these things that are have these more realistic hacking conceits starting to show up? And like maybe War Games did for a certain generation. Do you think things like this might fire up younger people to get stoked about sort of like the real like problems in the world and and so forth? Um, I, I, I'm just going to sort of pass it around the room to see if anyone has any thoughts on this. But yeah, I can I can start. Um... Chris, and one thing I want to say is like, so this the scene you just saw from Mr. Robot, these things may be possible, but to Josiah's point earlier, it's not going to happen nearly as fast as they showed in that show. Sure. Like he might work against that target for a year and maybe get to the point that he has the kind of control that he's a, he's ingrained himself in that organization enough to be able to do some of those things. But the part they don't show is how long it takes to to get to that point. Um, So I think people that are trying to get into it should be encouraged by the fact that like, yes, you can have some power. You can have some ability to affect real change and help organizations with their security. But while he, we saw 30 seconds of him doing stuff on the screen, you know, what you don't see is like the, the eight to 12 weeks of reconnaissance and other stuff that he did to get to the point to be able to get even a foothold into that environment to start exploring internally to get set up to do something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I worked in healthcare back in the day and, and, and the whole windows 98 thing is, you know, can confirm like it, it was a lot of these systems uh, are very slow to update, you know, some very antiquated, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, systems and whatnot. So I, I understand that, but yeah, at the same time, it's still going to uh, take some work to, to get in there. So I just wanted to mention that briefly, but I want to move on to uh, another clip here also from Mr. Robot. This is um, uh, a later episode of the series uh, in which our uh, protagonist, Elliot, has had something that 
I think everyone on this panel has taken part of in some part of their lives. Thing that no doubt will look familiar to Josiah and, and, and Josh here. It's a very above board, very well lit, and not at all sketchy and in no way illegal. Capture the flag competition in some basement. So uh, let's start with Josh here. Tell our listeners about your work coaching the U.S. cyber games. Like, What level of skill and proficiency do athletes come from? And can you give us a little sense of what types of challenges they have to work through? Well, you know, I'll back up and talk about the program in general. So mm-hmm. so the U.S. Cyber Games program, uh, we're in our third season of it. Uh, we start out every year with the U.S. Cyber Open, which anyone can sign up, anyone can get involved in. And I recommend anyone that is even getting into this sign up and, and you know, play our CTF, play, play our competition uh, and, and learn from that. So that's our whole goal, you know, to try to, to bring cyber games, you know, as, as an introduction to, to individuals that are age 18 to 25. So from that cyber open, we invite back uh, roughly about uh, 90 individuals from that cyber open back to our combine uh, to be assessed once again in a little bit tougher challenges uh, to look at their skill uh, look at their experience. We evaluate them wholly in the in, in the combine, and then from that combine, we select a team of thirty, which we take into international cybersecurity competitions, uh, specifically international cybersecurity competition I- ICC, which will be in Chile this year, and the European cybersecurity competition, uh, which will be in Italy this year. So. We try to select individuals based upon their different skill sets. So Josiah, for example very strong in tooling and attack and defense. Uh, so we look for individuals that complement our competition areas. But there's individuals that are strong in CTF. There's individuals that are strong in forensics, strong in crypto, strong in, in web and pwn. So we try to round out our team. So when we're dropped into these competition environments, we have this rounded, holistic skill set. And this is where the Mr. Robot clip does show some relevance uh you know where elliot drops down and you know tells this guy have you tried this this and this those are things that we do but we do that at a very deep scale so you you know you have seven or eight people that could potentially be looking at a problem talking through things try this try this try this and and eventually you know we come up with a with a skill that will work and then do write-ups on that that post game so um, I, I, you know, this is one of Mr. Robot, that clip, you know, even though it's as shady and seedy as it looks, <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a lot of truth to that, uh, oh, in yeah. that interaction. I think that, that, that both Josiah and I've seen in competitions, uh, that, that, that holds some truth to that. So that's, that's the fun part of it for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I mean, even as someone who is, who is not, you know, at anywhere near any of your level, like you can feel that it, it feels different. Like it feels like they're, you know, it's coming from a, a, a sort of an authentic place. And I know that they've had actually said that they have, you know, consultants to make sure that this stuff actually uh, sort of goes as it's supposed to. So uh, I want to turn to Keytron real quickly. Um, you know, our InfoSec skills, uh, cybersecurity skills learning platform has from the beginning included strong hands-on uh, learning elements similarly through realistic practice lab simulators uh, and cyber ranges that require hands-on acuity to solve. Uh, you know, so what is, uh, how does the process of moving beyond book learning and imagining real-world problems and getting into the guts of it uh, sort of help yourself improve learning and retention? Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost just like if you, you know, I've seen people, you know, my daughter included that you know, to, to get her driver's license, she absolutely mastered that driver's manual. Like you could ask her any question theoretical about what you should do if, you know, how far do you need to be away before you turn your signal on? Like she had, she knew all that stuff cold, but, you know, I take her out and put her in the car and it's, you know, it's immediately wobbling all over the place. You never, it's, you have to get your hands on the keyboard and start doing things. Because until you do that, you're always going to have those that nervousness and that lack of confidence that you can do it. Uh, a big part of that, what I've noticed over the years of training people is when you give people a technical task, like let's say find a vulnerability and, and break into a machine, it's never the really complex cyber stuff that hangs them up. It's the basic things like, oh, what was the command to do this or um, how do, how would I get this now that I've gotten into this machine, how am I going to get the data off this machine back to my machine? Like just setting up basic backhauls and just doing the very basic things. Those are the things that usually hang people up. And it's because they haven't actually sat down and did the foundational hands-on stuff 
before moving on to the I want to break into a box, you know, because a lot of it really is taking a lot of your foundational engineering how to knowledge and stringing it together in a way that leads to you compromising something or leads to you being able to get to something. So I think the main way to get from book knowledge to actually being able to go out and do it is you got to get yourself into an environment that you can practice safely and start practicing like that. I think that's the only way. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, um, yeah, we're coming down on, on time here. And so I'm, I think what I'm going to do in, I think we pretty much know the conclusion that, uh, uh, realistic hacking on TV is not really, uh, something that we need to necessarily concern ourselves with. Uh, we have plenty of, um, people coming in who already know kind of what they want to do and, and we're, you know, doing our best to increase outreach of, uh, you know, future cybersecurity professionals of tomorrow. Uh, so I want to just kind of turn off the overhead projector and, and put the chairs in a circle here because we have a lot of questions from our audience to get through. So um, I want to just kind of go through these uh, in order. So um, I want to start here. First one, uh, Jeff Peters writes, uh, oh, it's uh, Jeff Peters that said that uh, Paul Menz writes, uh, I am searching for the optimal training platform for cybersecurity training slash certs, but ideally I want a career jump from a system admin to a cyber analyst. Uh, I wonder if anyone has any thoughts on, on that. Yeah, I can take that, obviously. Um, so in our skills platform, there is actually, um, we have defined role-based training. So you can say, I want to be a cyber analyst or a cybersecurity engineer and pick that. And it shows you the recommended learning path for that. That includes you know, you need to watch these videos and get some of this theoretical knowledge, but you also need to go do these labs that are directly related to that to get the hands on. But I think anything you can find out there that, you know, that has the ability to map what your goal is to an actual hands-on exercise is going to be valuable to you. The problem with a lot of the platforms is it's just a collection of stuff and you'll spend 20 hours doing something that you think is helping you get to a goal. And then you talk to someone that actually does that job and you find out that thing that you spent 20 hours doing is not really going to help you at all with, you know, the job that you're actually trying to get. So I think the key there is finding platforms that allow you to do that kind of mapping and communicate with people that already do what it is you're trying to do. And they can kind of help you cut a lot of wasted time out. Uh, all right. Oh, go ahead. Say, Sorry. If I build on that real quick. So when I was the, when I was the CTO of Splunk, it was something, a really interesting pattern I saw develop amongst our, our customers. So Splunk started off as an IT operations tool and platform, eventually became security. But, you know, in, in that question, interesting background, right? Starting as an IT admin and trying to get into security. And what I saw was that when a server crashes in that initial period of triage, you don't know if it crashed because of an IT issue or because of a cyber attack. And so those that were on the IT ops side, they were able to... Uh, kind of master that initial triage process of characterizing, is this an outage? Is this a security issue? We're able to quickly evolve their career path, not just being really good at troubleshooting incidents, but then also being able to investigate security uh, breaches. Because there's a lot of synergy and overlap of expertise and skill sets to do both of those things. So to go from like IT admin to almost like DFIR, and then from there you start to understand TTPs and so on that, that's an interesting path that I saw amongst the Splunk community. And, um, and it became a pretty consistent way for a person to, to start with an IT background and master or enter or break into the security background at even a, a mid-level position or even higher. Thanks. Uh, Caitlin Scott has a question, and she's specifically uh, directed it to Josh here. Uh, said, I have a BS in criminal justice with a little bit of knowledge of cyber slash computer forensics, uh, what career paths would you recommend, especially in a corporate slash enterprise environment? Oh, on goodness. That? And that's a good one because I, I, I transitioned out of law enforcement as well. And, um, you know, one of the things I recommend and to anyone out there getting into this, especially if they're transitioning from like LEO or investigative into, you know, private sector or, or you know, cybersecurity as a whole, uh, differentiate between education and training. OK, so, you know, you may not have an educational background in that. It may be something to consider because the educational background is going to give you the bedrock to, to build on, not just for a career or otherwise. So so look at programs that kind of build that that bedrock or that good foundation for you uh, of learning the protocols, learning the, the 
you know, how networks work. Um, and that doesn't matter if it's at the community college, the bachelor's level or master's level or even doctorate level. Um, you know, look at that good educational um, foundation. Keytron brings up an excellent point. Look at trainings that map to certain pathways. And if you're transitioning out of law enforcement, a lot of people, you know, they just look at the blanket of cybersecurity. But there's areas like incident response, you know, where investigative mindsets are very well valued. Uh, and that's really where forensics and, you know, red teaming meet in, in certain areas. So, um, you know, value the skill set that you have, but build upon that. Incident response is a great area to look at. There's a lot of legal, uh, you know, fintech firms that are looking to hire those individuals, uh, legal tech, uh, and even private sector, you know, your, your fortune 500 companies, you know, they're all looking for individuals that kind of carry that investigative mindset to the table. And just know that, you know, when I got into this and I was making that transition myself, I felt like I had to know everything you're working on teams. So, you know, you're working with teams of people and, and, and build that skill set, knowing that, that you're, specific skill set that you're really good at might be the right fit for that team. And whether it be incident response or crypto or whatever the case may be, you're going to fit in that organization if they value that skill set that you have. So don't feel like you have to know everything, but yeah. at least, you know, get a good foundation on it and then start to, to practice and, and look for areas that map or trainings and, and simulations and exercise that map to what you want to work in. And, and I think with that playbook in mind, I, I think you set set yourself up very well uh, to make that transition without a whole lot of grief. All right. Thank you. So I have one more here. Um, again, a question very near and dear to my heart here uh, for our, our, our people changing to uh, career, this career later in life. Uh, Ethan Rotman says, uh, I currently work as an IT support specialist for a public school district, and I've only been here for a year and a half, but I eventually want to transition to a cybersecurity career path. Are there any good starting points or things I should work towards doing slash getting besides finishing my BS program? Is finishing a bachelor's program even necessary or helpful? Uh, I can jump on that one. Um, I mean, I think the most important thing is, again, look for some platforms. Like if they don't offer a free option, like you should be able to get like 30 days free or something like that. The reason that's important is because it gives you a chance to go in and explore all these different paths so that you can kind of figure out the answer to that question. Because when people ask me, how do I get into cybersecurity? The first question I ask is, well, what do you want to do in cybersecurity? Like, do you want to do offensive, defensive? Do you want to do like high level management? Do you want to do uh, audit work? Do you want to do in the weeds technical work? Because the answer to that question, they all have different paths that you should take you know, to get to a proficiency in that area. So I think getting into some platforms that you can get into for free to just kind of play around and see what it is that piques your interest. Because I have the story, like the best pen tester I've ever hired was a uh, young lady that was a liberal arts major that was a piano player that I met at the Kennedy Center here in D.C. when I was because I was playing piano there and she was playing because piano is like a side hobby of mine. No, she had no background in technology or cyber, but she was just interested in doing something for some work. And she had a knack for technology. So I say that to say it doesn't matter what degree you have, what your background is. If you think you have the interest, go ahead and, and feed that. Go ahead and explore it. See where you fall with it. Because, again, out of the 25 years I've been in this industry, the best person I've hired was someone that had no background or no degree in cyber or technology at all. So don't be discouraged by age or whatever it is you have as degree. Just jump in there today. Uh, whether you finish the degree or not, I don't think it really matters that much. If you can finish it, I would say go ahead and finish it. it. It can only help you. But don't let that stop you from taking some action today as far as getting into some platform so you can see kind of where you are. All right. Well, I think that might be a really good place to, uh, to wrap things up. Is it, does anyone want to add anything to any of this before we uh, start to wind this down? Okay. Uh, all right. Well, then I think uh, we're, we're coming close on, on time here. Uh, and so I'd like to thank all the people who are still here and, and actively engaged. Uh, 
I'm told that we still have a very hopping uh, uh, chat out there. And so uh, if we didn't get to your question, we will answer it um, in the in the next couple of days. So thank you again for writing those in. Uh, and with that, I'd like to just say thank you to everyone at home or at the office or listening and watching today's episode of CyberWork Live. So if you enjoyed today's event, I hope you'll keep watching for future installments of our Media Myths Cyber Reality series, which will likely include episodes on red teaming and physical breaches, confidence tricksters and social engineering, depictions of the dark web, and many more. Uh, for anyone new to our program, I'll also point out that new episodes of the Cyborg Podcast are available every Monday at 1 p.m. Central. You can just go to infosecinstitute.com slash podcast to see all our past episodes uh, and links to Keytrons and Snail's past episodes in the resources sections uh, in there and as well as in, the, in uh, this uh, presentation here. And you can also in click on individual bios for more information on each of our panelists. Uh, also, keep the fun going by checking out infosecinstitute.com slash free to check out all of our free resources including Work Bites, our security awareness series, our uh, cybersecurity talent development ebook, which has training plans for the 12 most common roles, uh, including SOC analyst, crowd security engineer, information risk analyst, privacy manager, secure coder, and yes, pen tester. Uh, so lastly, uh, I know we're, we're coming up on this very quickly, but I just wanted to thank you uh, all once again uh, and thank our wonderful panelists, uh, Snehal Antani, Josh Brunty, Josiah Stearns and Keytron Evans for joining us today. Uh, and thank you to all of our guests for attending and submitting great feedback and questions. Uh, as we end the presentation today, a very quick survey will appear. If you would just take a moment and share your thoughts, it's very appreciated and it'll help us to produce, produce more great content in the future. So thank you again, everybody have a great day. And once more, please leave Bill Highsmith alone. He's doing his best out there, all right? Bye now. Thanks guys. How about some free cybersecurity training resources for you and your team? Just go to infosecinstitute.com slash free to get ebooks, training guides, and more than 100 cybersecurity training courses, all free for cyber work listeners. Go to infosecinstitute.com slash free and start learning crucial new skills today.